The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. I would ask that you please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Last week we began preaching through the latter part of Genesis, which focuses on the life of Joseph. But just as quickly as Genesis sets its lens on Joseph, it just as rapidly shifts away to examine the life of his brother, Judah. Today we're going to wade into the murky darkness of the sinful life of the fourth son of Israel. The events described here in this chapter are absolutely disturbing. They are repulsive, and they reveal the heart of a rebel. It is for this reason that we have dismissed the middle school students this morning. If you examine this text, you will find that there are many things in it that are quite concerning. If you take an extremely valuable piece of finely crafted machinery you're going to look inside of such a thing and you will find that there are many intricate and amazingly well-crafted parts. My car might not fit the bill of uh, this, but my car is still a well-built machine. If I go to my car, I know nothing about cars, and I open the hood and I begin to look underneath, there are certain things that I will recognize. I will recognize the engine and maybe some of the, the belts to spin around and I know where the, uh, to put the, the plugs on there to, to jump my car. But most of the stuff that's under the hood, I actually have no idea what it does. But let's just imagine what would happen if I said, you know what? I don't know what this piece does, and I went and I got a wrench and maybe a screwdriver, and I took it out and just started anything I didn't recognize or understand how it worked, I just threw it out. The result would probably be that I wouldn't be able to leave the parking lot. My car would not function. The important thing to understand when we come to the text is that this is a challenging, difficult text to preach through, but we must not skip over passages like this in our Bible. One commentator named H.C. Leopold says that this chapter is entirely unsuited to homiletical use. In other words, don't preach this in your church. However, the Bible is a finely crafted, very precise book written by the Holy Spirit where each chapter is placed here by or for a specific purpose. There is no accident in the placement of this text. And I hope that you will come to agree with me by the end of this sermon that Genesis 38 has much to teach us about ourselves and about Christ. So please follow along now as I begin reading at verse 1. It says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was born in Kezib, where she she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. 
But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anaim which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you, sh- you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one uh, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Let's pray. Lord, we pray today that you would feed your people by your word that you would give us strength to understand and that you would give us wisdom to apply what your word has to teach us. God, we ask that as we come to this very awkward and difficult and challenging text, that you would help us to know exactly what to bring away from it. 
What exactly is it that shows us Christ here in these verses? Lord, I I recognize my own weakness in the pulpit this morning, and I pray that you would work above and beyond my abilities, Lord, knowing that only the Holy Spirit is able to do anything of value today. So, God, I pray that you would please do a great and mighty work in our heart. Convict us of sin. Give us the gift of repentance. Help us to have faith in Christ in such a way that we would live a life of purity. Just as Mike prayed earlier this morning, we ask that this church would be a beacon of purity to the world that is so committed to its dishonoring of you. So we pray, Lord, that today would be a great day of encouragement from your word. Amen. Our approach to this text this morning is going to be to consider the following five points. Number one, Judah's consistent sin. Two, Onan's selfish sin. Three, Tamar's deceptive sin. Four, Judah's greater sin. And finally, God's amazing grace. Let's begin with Judah's sin. This story begins with a little phrase which says, at that time. At what time? Let's rewind the tape just a smidge and remember what Judah has just done. In the previous chapter, he was caught in some kind of sin by his brother Joseph. We're not sure what, but probably, according to the scholars, some form of prostitution, which follows because of this text. That's probably what it was. And his father was informed by Joseph, and it seems that his father didn't really discipline him in any way. Then, in his jealousy, he helped his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. Remember that it was Judah in the previous chapter who said, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not, let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. Let's at least make some money out of this deal. He had just lied to his father, and he had just tricked him into thinking that Joseph, the favorite son, was dead. Perhaps this was the inciting incident that caused Judah to leave. For it does say, at that time, Judah goes away. So why is it that Judah leaves? We don't know exactly. Perhaps it's because he sees his father grieving, and he can't stand to be around him. Perhaps it's because he looks at his father, and he sees him mourning, and he views him as weak and thinks, I'm a more powerful man than my father. He wanted to leave and he wanted to strike out on his own. And it seems like he wanted nothing to do with the divine promises of his family line. He, like Esau, was content to depart and to be outside of the plan of God's redemption. You see, this clearly is presented to us in a few ways here in the text. First, Judah befriends Hira, the Adulamite. Hira seems to be his friend and his closest confidant, and later in the chapter, he is willing to help Judah to cover up great sin. Although Judah was already a great sinner in chapter 37, he is now surrounding himself with somebody who is helping him to walk in the path of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 33 says, "Do you do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals." This man has now made a very unwise decision. Let me surround myself by somebody who is going to incite me to further sin. Who keeps your company? Are you surrounding yourself with the people of God? It isn't a question just of proximity. What do I mean by that? I'm not saying, who are the people who are closest to you all week? Who are the people who are nearest to you? You sit by people all the time on the the bus or the train or 
in a restaurant or at work that have no influence over you. It's not a question of proximity, but a question of influence. Who is it that you look up to? Who is it that you try to impress? Who is it that you try to imitate? Whose jokes make you laugh? Do you feel at home with the world? Does the company that you keep look like the company that Judah kept? He keeps this company as a way to continue dulling his conscience. So I ask you to take stock of the company you keep and see if the Lord would make changes in your life. But Judah also reveals his disdain for his family by doing exactly the opposite of what his family has always been instructed to do. They were not to marry the Canaanite women. But when he sees the daughter of Shua, he marries her and has three children with her. And this again leads to the dulling of his conscience, as we see later in this text. I've been on the, in the ministry now for just about 14 years. And there are many people that I've seen struggle in their walk with Christ. True believers who really know Jesus, but their life has become in some way, shape, or form distracted or discouraged in the gospel for one reason or another. And usually the main thing that causes people to be discouraged is sin in their own heart. And I have seen people struggle with all sorts of sin. But the one thing that dulls spiritual senses faster than anything else that I have ever observed is when a believer sets aside their convictions so that they can enter into a relationship with an unbeliever. I've seen it many times, and the result is always the same. So I'm speaking now to those who are single and who are searching. Trust the Lord to provide a spouse for you. Let him be the one who makes that choice. Let your motivation be holiness, not loneliness. The Lord is using your time of singleness to produce something in you. He is using this time to produce resilience against sin and to produce in you trust in Christ and reliance on him. The entire mess that we find in this chapter begins with Judah's sinful desire to reject his family in various ways. And then we see that he has three children of his own, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And you know what they say, life ain't easy for a boy named Shelah. (laughs) Which brings us now to our second point. Onan's selfish sin. Look again at verses 6 through 7. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Perhaps the most mysterious part of this chapter is the vague nature of Ur's death. We don't know exactly what sin he committed, nor do we know the circumstances surrounding his death. All we know is that God would not permit him to live because of his great wickedness. So what happens now with his wife? What happens to Tamar? In order for this chapter to make any sense at all, we must invest some time recalling the nature of the ancient custom called leveret marriage. In these days, women were not allowed to own any property which means that when the husband dies, the inheritance is passed down to the next male heir. Ur was the firstborn, therefore he was in line to inherit the bulk of Judah's property. And Judah had much to give. But in a situation like this one, where Ur and Tamar had no son, the next brother was supposed to be joined together with Tamar to produce an heir. 
this was a great deal for the deceased guy, Ur, because this would mean that his name and his line would continue. The son would not bear the name of his actual biological father, but the name of the deceased father, Ur. So this means that his line would continue. However, Onan did not desire to produce an heir so that the inheritance would not go to Ur's son, but would instead go to Onan himself. So much has been made about Onan's sin in terms of how we should apply this today. There are some who believe that this text is a key argument or proof text against birth control or family planning. When I say family planning, I am not speaking about abortion. We know that that is wickedness. We know that that is sin. However, it's very dangerous for us to build a code of sexual misconduct around this text because that is not what the text is getting at at all concerning birth control or family planning. If you carefully analyze what is happening here, you will find that there are three main reasons that Onan's actions were deemed sinful by God. First, because he directly disobeyed a command. He rebelled against the customs and against his father's direct instruction to go to Tamar and produce an heir. In other words, this man was legally married to her and he was refusing to give her a child. This act of defiance probably seemed like a small thing to him. But as we see, God was greatly displeased and God struck him down. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So I ask you to consider your life. Are there any areas of disobedience where you know what the right thing to do is, but you justify yourself by either delay or complete rejection of that command? Maybe it's something that everybody else knows about. But perhaps it's something like Onan, where literally nobody else knows. This is a secret sin hidden from the outside world. Perhaps it's something that you know is in your heart and you are unwilling to let go. Perhaps it's a delay to forgive somebody or to seek reconciliation. Perhaps it's a refusal to serve somebody here in the body with your gifts. Perhaps it's a habit that you know has become an idol for you, something that was good, but now it's become evil because of the way that you have loved it more than you love Christ. Perhaps it's something that you just don't want to let go from your life before you knew Christ, that you know you must, whether that's entertainment of some sort or some kind of a friendship that is dragging you down into uh, sin. I just ask you right now to examine your own heart and see if there's something you know the right thing to do and you're unwilling to do it. God takes sin very seriously. It is for this sin of Onan that God struck him down. This text is God's gentle but very firm command telling you today, repent. The second reason that Onan's actions were sinful is that they were self-serving and that they were unloving. He was being selfish. He was not interested in giving. He was interested in taking for himself. He did not want his brother to have anything or his descendants to even exist. Just like Judah in the previous chapter, he was interested in taking advantage of his brother's demise for his own personal gain. But there's a third and greater reason that this was deemed sinful by God. And that is that the promise goes far beyond Onan, and it goes far beyond Ur, and far beyond the child that would come from them. God intended all along that Judah's line would eventually lead to the Messiah. And the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis chapter 3 was to come through the family tree of Judah. 
And by refusing to produce an heir, Onan was essentially lifting up his middle finger to God, and he was declaring, I don't care about your plans. I want what I want. Forget you, God. And for all of this, God struck Onan dead. Which brings us now to point number three, Tamar's sin. Tamar is now in a terrible predicament. As we read in verse 11, it says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Interesting, Judah does not seem to understand why his boys died. He doesn't seem to get that it was because of their sin not because of Tamar. He is looking at this woman and he's thinking of her as the black widow who is going to destroy my son if he marries her. She is somehow cursed and she is the cause of the calamity that has befallen my other two boys. It is clear that he has no plan to allow her to get anywhere near Sheila. So he dismisses Tamar and he kicks the can down the road and it tells us in verse 14, she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. This was an excuse by Judah. He was never going to allow Sheila to become the heir-producing husband. Tamar would have had her needs met living in her father's household. She would have had all the food and shelter that she needed, but it means that she would not have any children, which would have brought with that much scorn. If you were a barren woman in those days, you were believed to be cursed by God. And everyone would look at her and think, you are a worthless, cursed woman. There is nothing of value in you. And so she would have been in her father's house as a widow with nothing. She is legally, though, betrothed to Sheila. By law, she cannot marry anyone else. Because of leveret marriage, she is now stuck. She cannot marry anyone but Sheila and Sheila's father will not allow him to marry her. So she finds herself trapped. And so she joins the ranks of the deceivers in Genesis by dressing up like a prostitute and waiting to find Judah where he knows he's going to be. Notice how this deception takes place. Just like Judah had used a coat and a goat, Tamar now uses clothing and a price of a goat to trick Judah. You reap what you sow. What goes around comes around. He has just deceived his father, and now in a very like manner, he is being deceived by his daughter-in-law. And Judah has been played for somebody just as shrewd and crafty as himself. But in order to understand the situation, let's look at it from the other angle, the other point of view, which is Judah's greater sin. This is our fourth point for the morning. In the latter part of the passage, we find Judah grieving over his wife. The daughter of Shua has now died, and he takes what seems to be the appropriate amount of time to grieve for her. So he travels then to Timnah during the time that the sheep were being shorn. And notice what it says in verse 21. He believes Tamar is a cult prostitute. He has sent his friend Hira, the Adolamite, to go find the cult prostitute. So please understand, when he goes out to this place where he's getting ready to see his sheep shearers, he encounters somebody that he believes not only to be a prostitute, but a cult prostitute. Now, I'm not going to get too detailed about what it looks like in those days to have uh, these different 
pagan cults that surrounded the different Canaanite fertility gods. But I will simply say that when he goes to this woman as a prostitute, it is not only an act of sexual infidelity, it is also a form of idol worship. He is going and worshiping a false god. He believes that this woman is serving an idol, and he goes to her anyway. Yet Judah was so inflamed with lust, he gave Tamar his signet ring and his staff and his cord as collateral for this event. One scholar explains this by saying it's like leaving a prostitute, your driver's license and your social security card and your signature on a rubber stamp. It's giving her everything to identify you. She can steal your identity very easily. This is stupid. But that's not surprising because sin makes you stupid, especially sexual sin. It is very interesting that this chapter stands in stark contrast to what we will see next week when Judah is tempted in the next chapter. Even the linguistic presentation of this in Hebrew is designed to show that where Joseph ran away from sin, Judah embraced it. No sane person would do what Judah does in this text. But those who are entranced by lust are not thinking. They are being controlled by their passions. One of the most dangerous temptations lurking today in this realm of sexual sin is pornography. And it serves to stoke the flame of lust in the heart. Recent studies suggest, by the way, that women are almost as likely to view pornography as men. So I'm not just speaking to one half of the congregation today. I am speaking to you as a body present. Guard your eyes. Ask your spouse questions about their purity. Lovingly seek to lead them and guide them or help them in their righteousness. Guard what your children are able to see. Use sight blockers and accountability software. Just a few years ago, uh, there was a site, I don't remember the name of it, and I didn't want to look it up, but there was a website that was designed to help men cheat on their wives. Uh, Do you guys remember when this thing went, went public? Somehow, all of the people who were registered on this website their information was released that they had somehow signed up for this and attempted to cheat on their wives using this website. And there was a pastor, a very uh, famous pastor, whose son was serving alongside of him in ministry, and this man's son, his name was found on that list. There were politicians on that list. There were pastors on that list. There were all sorts of men on that list. How on earth... Would you be so stupid as to sign your name into anything searching for this kind of a relationship? Don't you know that anything on the internet is proven to be findable? Somebody has a record. Somebody knows what you've done. Somebody knows what you've done beyond just God. God knows everything. But what you've done will come to light. People will find out. There is a promise that your sin will come to find you. Please understand that these sins make you stupid. Just for a moment of sexual pleasure, people are willing to give up so much. Please understand that sexual sin makes you stupid, and there's a reason the Bible doesn't tell you to fight it. It tells you to run from it. If you need help setting up a plan, or if you need somebody to help you with accountability in this area, please talk to the elders. We desire for our church to be a church filled with purity. We want to help you in that fight, as we fight as well. So Judah has lied to Tamar about the marriage to Shelah. Then Judah slept with Tamar, even though he didn't know it was her. And when he tried to have his friend send the goat, she was gone. 
So now he's probably terrified. What happened to my stuff? Where's my signet ring? That's what I use to sign any important document. She could sign anything and forge it in my name. She has my staff. Now, these staffs would be carved with the names of his family, and they would be carved with his ancestry. It was a way to prove who you came from and who belongs to your tribe. And she also takes his cord, which is probably his clothing, uh, the thing that he would wear to represent his authority in his family. She has taken that functionally away from him. So now he's terrified. So what does he do? He just tries to cover it up by pretending like nothing ever happened. That was a bad move. Let's just get past it. Let's just move on and act like nothing has ever taken place. I I really wonder what the next three months must have been like for him. I wonder if he was like twiddling his thumbs and he's like nervous, if he has a hard time going to sleep, wondering, is is there going to be somebody showing up to bribe me tomorrow morning when I wake up? I wonder if he was fearful of being found out. He says that he was afraid of being made a laughingstock. He doesn't want people to think nothing of him or little of him. He doesn't want the entire community to laugh at him for giving up all of this stuff for a dalliance with a prostitute. Or maybe he struggled to sleep at night, but maybe he didn't. Maybe he started to fear, and then after a few days, that just kind of went away. And, and he started to craft a new staff and make a new signet ring. And maybe each day he felt like that sin was farther and farther in the rearview mirror, and he just thought, Phew, I think I'm safe. I think I'm safe. I think I'm safe. But you cannot hide from your sins. Be sure they will find you out. Which brings us now to point number five, God's amazing grace. To this point in the sermon, we have seen sin after sin after sin after sin from all the characters involved. Nobody comes out of this chapter looking good. Nobody is clean. And we can learn many lessons about how to live just by seeing their mistakes and saying, I must not do that. But if I were to leave you with a simple list of do's and don'ts from this text, it would ultimately do nothing of ultimate value for you because all it would do is produce legalism and stoke your own natural propensity towards moralistic therapeutic deism. Yeah, God exists, so I need to be a better person so that I'll feel better. That is not what this text is designed to do. Genesis 38 carries with it great news that Judah is not like Joseph. Think about this. He does not trust God. He does not honor God. He does not live a moral life. Yet, God takes this great sinner and God redeems him. Many people have asked the question, why is this chapter even placed here in the middle of the Joseph story? In fact, there was one guy who organized the Bible uh, several years ago, about 1,500 years ago, who basically took this chapter and he removed it from its place and put it at the very end of the book so that it would be after the story of Joseph because he said, this does not fit here in my Bible. This story does not make sense. But this is here for a reason. And I think part of the reason is to show that while Joseph was being trained by God in Egypt, God was also doing a sanctifying work in Judah as well. This is not a one-day story. This chapter encompasses probably 30 years of Judah's life. Later in Joseph's story, Judah is going to be seen to be a respectable, honorable man. And the question, I think, for the reader is, how does he go from what we see in the first chapter of Joseph's story, where he sells his brother into slavery, to being that honorable and respectable man? And the only answer we can find to that is chapter 38. Look again at verse 24 and following. It says, About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, 
She is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When Judah discovered that Tamar had been immoral, he was very quick to cast judgment. He was rapid to decide and declare that she deserved death. I think he was probably actually happy to have found out some reason that he he could have her killed. I think he was just begging for an opportunity to, to get her out of his life. But before she was burned at the stake, she outed Judah as the actual father of her illegitimate pregnancy. Imagine Judah's realization. He has just made it clear to everybody in his family, this woman deserves the death penalty. And then, in the presence of everyone in his family, it seems, his sins are made public. When you sin, you know that you're doing something wrong. You know that you are breaking God's commands. You know that you are intentionally pursuing the opposite of what God has called you to do. Yet, you justify that in your mind, and you think that it really isn't that bad. The sin looks like a small, innocent thing while it's hidden in the darkness, but then when it's brought into light, it's shown for what it really is. When Judas saw his sin, he realized that he had been tricked. Notice he does not respond with anger at this woman. He doesn't look at her and say, you deceived me. Rather, he simply looks at himself and he says, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And the fact that he did not know her from then on, I think, is an indication that there truly was a change in Judah's heart that day. And God was merciful to Judah. And the next time we meet him, he is once again at his father's house, the father that he has rejected and removed himself from for the last 30-ish years. Now he has returned. Judah was an honest, Joseph was an honest, hardworking, obedient, pure man of integrity, right? But Judah was a dishonest, disobedient, dishonorable, impure man of the world. But what they have in common is this. They were both sinners, and they both needed to be saved by the grace of God. There is nobody that you know who is exempt from needing the grace of God. So in your life, you may have a lot of people that look more like Joseph and a lot of people that look more like Judah. Please understand, both of those groups of people need the gospel. They need to hear it from you, and they need to have your prayers so that God might break open their heart and redeem them. God saves people of all sorts. And do you think in God's eyes that Judah was really more pure than Joseph? Both of, them, both of them had broken his perfect standards. Both of them were worthy of the death penalty, yet both of them were able to be saved because God's grace covers the greatest of sinners. There's nobody that you know that is exempt from the need of the gospel. Judah's story in this chapter ends with the common theme of Genesis of the older and the younger swapping roles. But the story does not end here at the end of verse 30. God's grace was working through this situation to preserve the promise of the gospel that a Messiah would come from Judah. Please turn in your Bibles all the way over to the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 1. We'll close out our sermon this morning here. 
The very beginning of your New Testament starts by summarizing the Old Testament by going through the genealogy all the way back to Abraham. One thing that stands out about this genealogy is that there are five women listed here. That's very unusual in a genealogy during this period of time in history, and it indicates that God's desire for us is to take note of these people. But it's not Sarah, it's not Rebecca, it's not Rachel that are listed here. Notice in verse 2 and 3 we read, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. But Tamar is not the last of the women to be listed. Verse 5 tells us, And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Just like Tamar, Rahab was a Canaanite, and Tamar dressed like a prostitute, but this woman was a prostitute. She was also, however, integral to the protection of the Israelite spies when Jericho was being spied upon and then destroyed. And Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 continues by saying, And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Tamar and Ruth were both foreigners who were widowed before having a child. Both of them had children by a leveret marriage. And notice what we find at the end of the book of Ruth, when Boaz and Ruth are finally married. This is the blessing spoken over Boaz. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Matthew chapter 1 verse 6 says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, although not mentioned by name, Bathsheba is noted in this text. And by saying that she was the wife of Uriah, Matthew is highlighting the sinful means by which she had become pregnant. Just like Tamar, the conception of the child of promise came by way of deceit and infidelity. But God was working through the midst of all of this. Every one of these sins and sinful situations produced an opportunity to see God's providence working through man's failures. Not one of these things caught him off guard. For then we arrive at the fifth woman on the list, Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This summer is going to be a long study in the providence of God. Every single chapter on some level is going to come down, boil down to the fact that we see God's hands sovereignly working out all things. But it is also designed to be a deep study of the gospel. The message of Genesis 38 is that God saves sinners by the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Judah's forgiveness came by way of his distant offspring. His salvation from starvation was given by his brother in Egypt, but his salvation from sin was purchased at the cross. So what do we learn from this text? We learn that Christ is gracious to forgive all who will come to him in repentance. So I ask you today, if you do not know Jesus, you might say, well, I'm not as bad as this guy in the text. But if you are not following Christ, if you do not know him as your Savior, what it means is you are just as bad as he is. Your sins just look a little different than his do. And the question for you is, will you repent? And will you be forgiven of your sin? 
And for those of us who do know Jesus Christ, and we have been saved by him, and his death on the cross did pay for our sins, and we have trusted in him and are living for him, the question for us is, are we going to continue on in sin, or are we going to run to Christ and recognize what he has done for us and live in purity? So I want to close this out today by declaring that we must live all of our days knowing that God is truly working out all things for good, and for his glory, and that his plans will stand, and in the midst of that, that we will hold fast to our holiness and bow our hearts low to him in worship. So let's do that now as we pray. Our Father God in heaven, we delight in you. I am amazed, Lord, that there is so much to be gleaned from a text that is so challenging as this one. And Lord, I pray that as we leave this morning, that each person here will have gained something of great value for their walk with Christ because of what we have heard this morning. And Lord, I do pray that if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, who is in open rebellion against you, Lord, that you would break their commitment to sin, you would break their heart, and you would cause them to have a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that's capable of responding to you with faith and repentance. And God, I pray that you would give us a church filled with people who are pursuing righteous living who are living in such a way that we are a light in the darkness. Please, Lord, don't let people look at us and see us as a church as a laughingstock, someone who is dragging the name of Jesus through the mud. If they laugh at us, let it be because we trust you. Let it be because we believe the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would not be in any way hypocritical. Give us the ability to trust you and come to you for forgiveness of sins. And Lord, I pray finally, as we as we close out this sermon, that you would please give grace to all who are here to be able to live in such a way that we see your, your hand operating over all that we do, that we would not worry, that we would not think little of sin, that we would not think little of temptation, that we know you are with us, you are watching over us, you are present, and that we would live in such a way that we are recognizing our union with Christ at all times. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.